Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey everyone, my name is Brian and I have the privilege of being able to share God's Word with us today on Palm Sunday. Hey, before we dive into the scriptures, if you would like to press pause or just duck out the room for a moment, or if you're watching on your phone, just kind of make your way over to your kitchen or wherever you are able to grab some communion elements because we are going to break bread together um, after the message this morning or this evening or whenever you're watching. And so if you want to get like a little representation of grape juice or something that you can use to uh, represent the body, the blood of Christ and a piece of bread or a broken up croissant or whatever is your fancy to use as the elements represent Jesus' body. Why don't you just go and grab those now and we will break bread and pray together at the end of my message. But to start off today, we are celebrating Palm Sunday. Now, I don't know if there is an official greeting or celebratory phrase that we say to each other on Palm Sunday. I don't think there is, but if there is one, I'll just say happy Palm Sunday to everyone who is watching. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter Sunday, and it prepares us to enter into what we in the Christian tradition call Holy Week as we observe Jesus going to the cross on Good Friday dying and then resurrecting on Easter Sunday. But today we are in Palm Sunday at the start of Holy Week. And we're going to look at Mark's gospel and read the account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be crucified and then rise again from Mark's gospel. And we'll go from chapter 10, verse 46. But before we do that, a few things that we need to take note of and set the tone and give a bit of a background. You see, Jesus... As you know, he was a Jewish man, and so was his biographer, Mark, who's writing the account that we're going to be reading from today. And both Mark and Jesus, they were steeped in Jewish uh, scriptures and what we call the Old Testament. The problem, however, is that we pick up Mark's gospel 2,000 years later in a different language than what it was originally written in, and for many of us, we're not Jewish or we don't have a Jewish history or background. And because of this, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we kind of just take for granted or miss out on because we don't come from the same framework. And so this morning, before we jump into the text and just kind of read through, I want to give us a bit of background so that we can frame the story correctly. There are three things that we need to know before we jump into Mark chapter 10 and 11, where we read Jesus entering into Jerusalem. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 35. We're going to look at three prophecies that show up and are fulfilled in Mark chapter 10 and 11 that any Jew would have known, but that you and I kind of miss out on or we do not know. So first up, first prophecy, Isaiah 35 from the Old Testament. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, the prophet says, and make firm the the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God, or in some translation it says your Messiah. So behold, your Messiah will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And this is the key part, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You see, when God comes or when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to blind people is what 
Isaiah is saying here. And, and that's the big takeaway. See, friends, this was unheard of uh, in kind of the miracles and the prophets and all of the religious leaders. No one was healing blind eyes. All of the prophets of Israel's day, they did signs and wonders. The, in fact, the majority of the stuff that we read about in Jesus' life and the signs and the wonders that he performed, they had all been done before. Things like healing the sick or raising the dead, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. None of this was actually original to Jesus. All of this had done, been done before by prophets like Moses or Elijah or Elisha. It was just a way of saying not so much that Jesus was God, but rather that Jesus was a prophet and that God's hand was all over his life. However, nobody had ever healed a blind man before because that particular healing was something that was reserved for only the Messiah to do. And so when we read about this person coming to bring sight to the blind, when we see that in the New Testament, what we are seeing is, yes, this man is the Messiah. Secondly, turn over to Zechariah chapter 9. So you've got the healing of blind eyes. In Zechariah chapter 9, another prophecy about the coming Messiah. We read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king or your Messiah is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot, which is like saying I'll cut off the military tank uh, from Ephraim and the war horse from the Apache helicopter, uh, you know, or from Jerusalem. Uh, and the battle bow, it's like the M16, shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule or his kingdom shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. What Zechariah is saying here is that when the Messiah comes, he will firstly ride on a donkey and he will bring an end to military violence and war. And in its place, he will bring about peace and he will uh, rule in his kingdom over the entire world. So we've got healing of blind eyes, peace and end to military violence and his rule. And then thirdly, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Malachi the prophet he, he was, he's writing about a dark and scary time in Israel's history, which we call the exile. And if you know the story, God has left the temple at this portion of history, which in Jewish theology was the center of the universe. The Shekinah glory of God has left the temple and God is nowhere to be found. And the people, they're scared. There's a lot of uncertainty. And the prophets begin to speak about Yahweh or the Messiah coming and bringing God's presence back to the temple. And we read in Malachi chapter 3, he says, look, I, this is God speaking. He says, look, I am sending my messenger. And we found out later that the messenger is John the Baptist. And he will prepare a way before me. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, so this is Messiah language now, the Messiah, whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And so here's what you need to see from, uh, from Malachi's prophecy. When the Messiah comes, he will come to the center of Israel's faith. He will come back to the temple. Okay, so you've got healing of blind eyes, peace, riding on a donkey, and coming back to the temple in Israel. Okay. Those are the three things you need to know. Let's jump back to Mark uh, chapter 10. And we're going to kind of work through our text for this morning. In verse 46, 
and they come to Jericho. So this is Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they are making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the season of Passover. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And now this is really great writing here. What's happening is Mark is telling us by saying he's sitting on the roadside, he's telling us that this man, Bartimaeus, is sidelined by society. He's probably a homeless dude uh, and he's kind of forgotten about and pushed to the margins of society. We read in verse 47, and when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, so he, at this time, you know, Jesus' fame is spread far and wide. He's pretty popular. Uh, when he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that phrase, son of David, was a way of saying Messiah. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, the prophecies said that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Meaning that he would be King David's like great, 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 whatever, his great, great grandchild. And so when somebody says son of David, uh, that became a figure of speech that was reserved for the Messiah himself. And so by saying son of David, what Bartimaeus is saying here, he's, he's recognizing that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. He's saying, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. He's, he knows the scriptures, and he's saying, I know that when the Messiah comes, because I know the scriptures, he's going to give sight to blind people. Yes, he's going to do all of the other miracles, but the one thing the Messiah is going to do, is he's going to give sight to the blind. And so he's saying, please come have mercy on me, come and heal me. In verse 48, and many people rebuked him, telling him to be silent. You can just imagine the scene, this blind guy sitting on the side of the road, calling out for Jesus, and the disciples saying, keep quiet, get out of here. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This guy, Bartimaeus, he just won't give up. He's not going to settle. And, and Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And I love this. Jesus, the embodiment of God whom we know and love. He stopped on the side of the road for a homeless dude and he meets with him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and he came to Jesus. Now, in that day, everyone would have walked around with a cloak, which is like kind of cool, I think, like kind of everyone rolling in their cool cloaks. But basically, a cloak was your jacket when it was cold. It was your blanket for you know, the evening so that you could stay warm while you sleep. If you were a beggar, you would spread your cloak out on the floor so people could throw money in and uh, you know, support you. And so this man, this homeless guy sitting on the side of a road, tossing his cloak aside is really a brilliant way of saying that he is abandoning his one earthly possession so that he can chase after Jesus. In verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do with you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi. He addresses him with this term, Rabbi. And that term carries a lot of respect. It can be translated from the original language to be master or Lord. This title is uh, you know, rabbi is kind of used very regularly throughout the scriptures when people pray to God. He says, rabbi, recognizing, hey, you're Lord, you're the master. Let me recover my sight. In verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you. And some translations say, your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovers his sight and he follows Jesus on his way. This can be translated, he becomes his disciple or his apprentice. So all of this to say, this blind man, 
Bartimaeus receives his sight because of his faith in Jesus. He receives healing and he is saved. So he receives body and soul transformation, an example of the complete and utter healing that can only be found in Jesus Christ himself. And what is his response? How does Bartimaeus respond to this healing? Well, firstly, he gives up everything he has to follow Jesus. In fact, he does that before he's healed, which is an interesting uh, point to note. And once he's healed, he becomes his disciple. Now, the question we have to ask is this. Brian, why are you spending so much time talking about the story of Bartimaeus before we talk about Palm Sunday and the scriptures that look at that? Like, why are we doing this? Why, why so much attention on this passage? Well, I think it's easy for us to read stories like this and view them just as random acts of kindness done by Jesus. And, you know, as if the whole point of the story was to tell us that Jesus is like really kind and he's a nice person and he, pre he practices random acts of kindness in his healings. Now, while I'm sure that Jesus is really nice, uh, there is nothing random about the healing stories that are included in the scriptures. Each one of them is very strategic. So why are we reading the story about the healing of a blind man just before we look at chapter 11 on Palm Sunday and the last week of Jesus' life leading up to Passion Week? The reason is because it's all a setup for what is to come. I want to show you this. Mark chapter 11, let's turn it together, verse 1. Now, when they came near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent his two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You know, why are you stealing my car, basically? If you can imagine the scene, say the Lord has need of it and will send it back to you immediately. And they went and they found the coal tied at a door outside of the street and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Like, why are you stealing our car? And they just told them, them that Jesus, what Jesus had said and they let him go. Now, what is this? This is Jesus enacting Zechariah's prophecy about the Messiah coming on a donkey. Do you, see, do you see how this is all strategic? These are not just random stories. In the Old Testament, we read about how the Messiah would come on a donkey and Jesus is now setting up the scene. Verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. They spread their cloaks on the road and they spread leafy branches and they had cut from the fields. Now, this is what you would do, by the way, for royalty. The road during those days would have been covered in dust and grit and grime and muck and, you know, but what people would do is they would spread their cloaks all over the road and they cut branches, palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, and they spread that all over the road to kind of make a clean entrance. This is basically 2,000 years ago. It was like cultural confetti or streamers or balloons. This is how you would throw a party or celebrate someone of importance. But you don't do this, at least in Jesus' day, just for anyone. You would, this was kind of reserved only for a king. And in verse 9, we continue to read, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, my youngest son, Caleb, went to school this week. And in preparation for Easter and kind of some of the crafts that they had done at school, he came home with, he was really proud about this, green palm branch that he had cut out of cardboard and um, he had cut it really neatly which he was really proud about and drawn on it and so on and I was 
chatting with him and asking him about this cool craft. And uh, he said to me, no, dad, what we need to do is we hold it and we wave it up and down and we must shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus is here. And so the, we, we know this word, Hosanna, Hosanna. If you've been around the church, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's in our worship songs and we teach our kids. But what is this church? What is this church? What does this word even mean that we speak about in church all the time? Hosanna. You're thinking like, what is what is Hosanna? Hosanna is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew praise word when directly translated means save we pray, save now. And so there's urgency in the word. It's a cry of desperation. These people aren't just singing like Kumbaya as Jesus walks into town. They're shouting with desperation, save us, we pray, save now as they recognize Jesus being the Messiah. In verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. By the way, this is kind of the most staggering part of the whole story, and we oftentimes just kind of skip over it. Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes to the temple. But this is Jesus now enacting Zechariah, uh, sorry, Malachi's prophecy of Yahweh, of the Messiah, or God himself, returning to the temple in Jerusalem. Remember the temp- the, the God's presence had left the temple? Now God's coming back to the temple. So he rides in on a donkey and goes straight to the temple. This is a way of saying, Jesus is saying, hey, not only am I the Messiah that you've been waiting for, but I'm also God himself entering back into Jerusalem, the creator, bringing Israel's story to its climactic close. He's saying, hey, I'm here. I'm back. God's presence is back amongst the people. And so Jesus fulfills the prophecies and there's singing and there's dancing and there's a party and and he returns to the temple, which is the center of Israel's faith. And so what we have here is a story that is a compare and contrast. You know, first up, we have Bartimaeus, the blind guy. And and he sets off against the rich young ruler, which we don't have time to jump into that full story this morning or today. Uh, But it's from the exact same chapter in chapter 10. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, it's a story about a rich guy who comes to Jesus and he has all the stuff. He has money and stuff and he has everything that he could ever want, but he is not willing to give up any of it. To follow Jesus. And we read in the scriptures that the rich guy goes off sad. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, he has nothing but a cloak. He's a homeless guy, a blind guy on the side of the road, and he gives up his one earthly possession to follow Jesus. And we continue to read that Bartimaeus leaves with joy. So the guy who's willing to give up everything is filled with joy, and he who was not willing to give up anything goes away sad. And then you have Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, which is actually, if you know the full background and context, it's set over against Pilate's entrance into Jerusalem. There's a backstory to Mark chapter 10 and 11 that we just don't get. You see, we're not Jewish, or some of us don't have Jewish background in history. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem that particular week to celebrate Passover was not the only entrance. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he was also in Jerusalem to celebrate the week of Passover, the festival of Passover. And there is a big juxtaposition between Pilate and Jesus that would have been staggering. Check this out. Pilate enters Jerusalem from the west. Jesus comes in from the east. Pilate, he enters in on a war stallion. Jesus arrives on a donkey, which is symbolic for peace. So here's the thing. If you were a king and you would come into a city, if you wanted to come in peace, you would ride a donkey. If you wanted to come in conflict and bring about war, symbolically, you would ride in on a stallion. So Jesus comes in on a donkey, Pilate on a stallion. Pilate with his, enters in with his army. Jesus enters in with his band of uh, peasant disciples. 
Pilate uh, with his empire of taxation and oppression, Jesus with his kingdom of God that brings about healing and freedom and new life. And so you have Jesus, king of the universe, entering in in this completely different manner to how a king in the world would enter into the same situation. And they basically, Pontius Pilate and Jesus, are on a collision course which will meet at the cross on Good Friday. Now, all of this is happening, as I said, during the season of Passover. And we all know the end of the story. And if you don't, spoiler alert, Jesus dies uh, a week later. You know, I watched um, a um, kind of meme. I don't know what it's called. What is a video meme? I don't know what that, uh, maybe it's called a video meme. But I watched one where there was this kind of Bible study happening. And uh, there was a new guy in on the Bible study. And they're going through the story and life of Jesus. And then they talk about Jesus dying. And this guy just free. He's like, what? Jesus died? And then they try and like calm him down because he's like distraught that Jesus died. And they tell him that he's going to rise again. So there is good news and a bit of a spoiler to the week ahead. Jesus dies. And, but don't worry, he does rise again. But so Jesus, he is crucified during the Passover season. But is this a coincidence? Like, did Jesus just so happen to die during Passover? The biblical answer is no. Again, nothing is by accident here. The reason Jesus came to Jerusalem that final time wasn't just to celebrate the Passover, but actually, get this, to become the Passover. And as the Apostle Paul says plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. But what does that actually mean? To see the answer, we need to begin in Exodus chapter 12, which is the story of the first ever Passover. And what we'll see is, we see why the Passover was necessary and what it's meant. You see, in Exodus chapter 12, during the first ever Passover, the setting is Egypt. The chosen people of God, the Israelites, are in Egypt. They're in uh, slavery, and the mood is just chaos. Uh, Egypt had been devastated by a series of nine plagues, and uh, Caitlin and Stevie kind of touched on this last week in our series on tilling the soil. Uh, but it, it, it wasn't just a string of bad luck that Egypt had come under these plagues. What was happening is that God was judging Egypt for keeping his people in captivity and slavery and bondage. And, and more than that, God is actually keeping a promise. He had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their children would have the land of Canaan as their inheritance, or what we call the promised land, but now they've been stuck in Egypt for centuries. And it's time now for God to act and to bring his people home. But first, there's one last plague that needs to come. And it's the most severe plague of all. Uh, the, most of the other plagues had not actually affected Israel and the Israelites in any way. They kind of been exempt. For example, their cattle didn't die. Their crops weren't hailed on. Their land didn't even go dark when all of Egypt went dark. But, you know, and, and they hadn't done anything anything to avoid these plans. God simply was not aiming his wrath in their direction. But the final plague will be a little bit different. You see, God will be aiming this plague at everyone. God is going to strike down the firstborn in Egypt, including the firstborn of Israel. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why would God do this? You see, despite the fact that Israel is God's chosen people, and despite the fact that they've been oppressed for centuries in Egypt and God's getting them free, the truth is, is that they are sinners too. In Ezekiel chapter 20, we read about the fact that, that Israel are themselves sinful. And, and basically, you can read the accounts. It, it tells the story of the fact that they've been worshiping the false gods of Egypt as well. They can't simply just ignore, uh, or God can't simply just ignore their sin. 
Their sin cannot go unpunished. You see, the message of the tenth plague is one that is really important. It's that God is holy and that God is just. You see, we can't lose the revelation that God is holy and that God is just. But the message of the Passover doesn't put a full stop at God is holy and just. It tells us also that God is merciful, that God is gracious. See, on the first Passover, God devised a plan in which he could be both just and merciful at the exact same time. We, we call it uh, substi- uh, sorry, uh, salvation through substitution. Uh, it's, it's quite simple. God provides provision. He gives them instructions. He tells them, take a lamb, make sure it's a mature male lamb, one year old, without any spot or blemish. Keep that lamb, examine it for 14 days to, you know, of the month, uh, the, and make sure that there is no spot or blemish on it. And, and the night that this plague is going to break out, the death angel is going to come and kill the firstborn kid or son, kill the lamb, and then take the blood of that lamb and wash it on your doorpost so that when God comes and sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over you, meaning Passover, which is this festival that they're celebrating. So that's the meaning. God spares Israel's sons, not because they are better than Egypt's sons, but rather because a spotless lamb dies in its place and its blood is now on the doorpost. So it's salvation through substitution. The lamb is substituted for the son. Now, if you wonder how can an animal substitute for a human being, the answer is that ultimately it couldn't. You see, how could God pass over human sins simply because an animal died? That was a problem that still needed to be resolved. And the resolution comes on Good Friday. Good Friday resolves the problem for us. Just as Israel stood exposed to God's wrath by the 10th plague because of their idolatry and sin, so we all stand exposed to God's righteous wrath because of our idolatry and sin. You see, friends, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And apart from some provision, we all are under God's wrath because God is holy and God is just. But in His infinite love, God has devised a plan. He has made a way to be holy and just and merciful at the exact same time. He's provided a way which is salvation through substitution. Now, the Passover was meant to paint a picture of that. It's meant to tell us like, okay, this is what will ultimately be fulfilled by the Messiah. But the Passover wasn't the real thing. See, when we get to the, 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 the Gospels, the true substitute arrives on the scene. In the words of John the Baptist, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you've read the scriptures before and you're thinking, why do they keep calling Jesus the Lamb of God or Lion and the Lamb or all these references to the Messiah being the Lamb? This is the reason why. It's because a sinless, spotless Lamb had to be substituted in our place for our sins. And with all typology, Jesus is the greater version, the perfect version or the fulfillment of an Old Testament type. We've looked at Moses and Joshua in particular in this series of the past six weeks as we've tilled the soils of our hearts where Moses and Joshua give us a foretaste into what Jesus will ultimately fulfill. But this time God doesn't ask us to provide a lamb. He provides the lamb himself. And this lamb is not a farm animal. It's not one of our kind of going to the pen and or wherever you keep lamb in the 
I don't know where you keep lamb. I'm not a farmer. But for the farmers out there, go grab a lamb. And, and no, he, this was lamb was fully God and fully man. He was uh, like us in every single way, except he did not sin. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of people. And it goes on, Paul writes in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 15, This high priest, Jesus, the Messiah of ours, understands our weaknesses, for he has faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So he's the perfect spotless lamb who's substituted in our place to pay the price for our sins. And with all typology, Jesus corresponded with the Old Testament type in so many ways. Check this out. Just like the Passover lamb, he was a mature male. None of his bones were broken. He was spotless, you know, kind of without blemish. He, he was thoroughly examined. You know, the lamb did 14 days. Jesus went for testing in the wilderness and he was found spotless. And he was then slain for our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom for you from the from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was from the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That's, that's what Paul means when he says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Our salvation comes through His substitution. That's why God can say to, to us, hey, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Which, which leaves the question, a really important question. Is his blood applied to you or me? Are we covered by the blood of Jesus? You see, in Exodus chapter 12, it says, you know, kind of strictly speaking, it was not enough for the Passover lamb just to be slain. Like they couldn't go grab the lamb, bring him inside, slain, and then cook a nice lamb roast. That's not how it worked. They, they, in order for God to pass over them, the blood had to be applied to the door. You see, if they admitted to... Uh, applying the blood of the lamb to the door, the lamb would have been absolutely no good to them. So the lamb would be dead, but it would have achieved nothing. In the same way, John Calvin once noted that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for our salvation or salvation of the human race will remain useless and of no value to us. You see, we actually have to accept the fact that Jesus Christ has died was buried and risen again to pay the price for my sins. We have to take the blood of Christ that washes us clean and apply that to ourselves. It's not enough to simply acknowledge the fact that Jesus died for our sins. We need to take the victory of the fact that Jesus has, has died and washed our sins away and, and conquered Satan's sin and death and apply that to ourselves. And we do that by faith. You see, you must look at the Lamb who's pierced for you, the Messiah, and embrace him by faith as our only protection from God's wrath. You see, faith is the instrument by which the blood is applied to you and to me personally. It's through faith and accepting the victory of Jesus in our hearts and recognizing, like Bartimaeus did, that he is the Messiah. And crying out in desperation like the, the Israelites did when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, save, we pray, save now, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. See, if you knock at the door and 
we have a humble heart that is filled with faith, we will find that there is plenty of room for us in God's house to be saved. Salvation through substitution. Jesus substituting himself in our place for our sins, paying the price. We receive the blood of Christ that washes us clean. I am now clothed in his righteousness. Friends, this is the message of Passover. It's the message that is the victory of Good Friday, and it's the hope of the world, which is what we celebrate on Easter. So what we want to do today as we close out our time together is we want to break bread together, and we want to remember Jesus. The reason we take bread and, and a cup is because we want to remember Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross and His blood that was shed. His body was broken, He suffered and He died so that He could pay the price for our sins, our substitute. And then His blood washes us clean so that we can stand as ones righteous before God, acceptable to a holy and just God. And so I'm going to pray and, and we're going to end our time together. And I'm going to encourage you to take the cup and to take the bread and to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and thank Jesus. Remember Jesus this Sunday. Remember the fact that we are his disciples who have been washed clean and redeemed by the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, that we have been saved and set free. If you're watching today and, and you've made it to the end of the message, well done. I'm sorry. I know there was a lot of detail in that. I just want to say that you're welcome, that you're welcome in the presence of God and that there is nothing you have to do or earn or achieve. You just have to, by faith, acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, accept his victory in your heart and live as a redeemed child of God. And so if that's you, if you're accepting Jesus for the first time, we'd love to connect with you. Can you jump on our website, click on the connect uh, section, get some details, reach out to us. And uh, we'd love to start a journey with you of walking alongside Jesus. And uh, you can pray with me now. And, and as we close out our time together, whether you're accepting Jesus for the first time, checking us out, or a regular who's going to take communion with us as we end our time together Let's just remember Jesus and celebrate together as we close. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that we can have this privilege of taking a moment like this where we remember the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that the long-awaited King of kings and Lord of lords who comes to redeem and save God's people has arrived, that you have fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that you have made a way for broken human, humanity to enter into the presence of God again. A God is holy and just, but we rejoice in your mercy, Father God, that we can, by the victory of Jesus, be washed clean and enter into the space of union and relationship with you. I thank you, Lord God, that you come and dwell at the center of the universe like we read jesus goes back to the temple symbolizing back to the center back to to his to your original place of intent which is amongst your people that you are with us right now and we pray lord god that we would enter into the presence of jesus this week as we celebrate as we observe and remember holy week or passion week that we remember the fact that we have a messiah who suffered and died but Good Friday is not the end of the story. There is a victory that we celebrate on Easter. 
And so may the victory of Jesus be the reality in which we live. We thank you, Lord God, that you've made a way for us, that you love us, that you're kind and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love towards us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hey, friends, we invite you again to come and join us on Good Friday for our paddle out. Uh, those details will be on the website and our social media and then all the services in Encinitas and downtown that will take place on Easter Sunday. Again, you can find all of that information on all of our social media and on our website. Bless you. Let's take time to break bread together and uh, yeah, bless you as you spend time with the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.